During the COVID-19 pandemic, health workforce capacity has been an important concern as personnel have been quarantined, have needed time off to care for sick family members, and have become sick themselves. Such challenges point to the importance of adapting regulations and finding creative solutions to expand the capacity of the U.S. healthcare workforce. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Aaron Freyer, Director of the Carolina Health Workforce Research Center at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Freyer has co-authored a perspective article about opportunities for increasing health workforce capacity to care for patients with COVID-19. Dr. Freyer, your perspective article was published online in early April. How have concerns about health workforce capacity played out since then? How often has adequate staffing been an issue for hospitals? I think it's been a big issue, and you're right. So when we published this article, the main focus was on surging the workforce, really making sure that we had the workforce needed to be available for ICU beds, to be available for ventilators. And there was a big focus on this acute phase, right? New York City was really the face of this. How do we get the appropriate workforce, the capacity surged? I would say since then, while there have been increasing focus on surging, there, I would say, been more focus on sustaining the workforce, recognizing that this is going to be here for a while. The pandemic is going to challenge this country and the workforce for a long way to come. And so what we're seeing is both focused by health systems and hospitals and regulators on, yes, surging and making sure we have the numbers, making sure we have the distribution, but also, I think, and more importantly, perhaps, focusing on sustaining that workforce. You write in your article that the threat of post-pandemic legal consequences could hamper the expansion of workforce capacity that you're talking about, but that such barriers could be removed by state governors. Can you explain the kinds of steps that states can take to expand workforce capacity during an emergency like this? So we've seen a lot of state flexibility in addressing workforce challenges. In fact, states play a critical role here. And one of the things that we've seen is regulatory flexibility. So we've seen state licensure bodies really practice great innovation in terms of coming up with ways to expedite the entry of new licensees. These are people who, for example, may be in the last year of education or training and so expediting their entry into the workforce. We've seen a lot of innovation in terms of bringing back retirees those people who may have been either retired out of the workforce for three years or maybe left to do something else briefly and reattracted those people back in and expedited their re-entry into the workforce. We've also seen a good deal of innovation around recognizing that we're going to have to have flexibility around the distribution of the workforce. And so state regulatory bodies and governors played a key role here in allowing for cross-state licensure. So If I'm licensed in Arkansas, I can practice in another state or I can go to New York and work there. So we also saw a big push towards recognizing that there may have been concerns by health professionals about perhaps stepping outside their legal scope of practice and that there would be ramifications even in the face of an emergency for perhaps doing something that was outside their regular scope and practice. So One of the things that I think was very innovative in Michigan, in fact, had a great executive order that allowed, for example, scope of practice expansion. So therefore, advanced practice registered nurses, for example, could practice without supervision of a physician. And this is incredibly important in, say, rural communities where a nurse practitioner may be one of the few practitioners 
but it's also important in places where we had fewer primary care physicians or physicians to meet the need so that we had the workforce and the ability to flex. So I want to emphasize that addressing the need of the COVID pandemic isn't just about numbers. It's not just about making sure we have the adequate numbers. It's about making sure that we have the ability to flex the workforce. And I think governors and regulatory bodies played key roles here in allowing that flex of the workforce. What about individual healthcare organizations? What types of internal policies and practices can they change to address some of these challenges? I think healthcare institutions, particularly healthcare systems and hospitals, played a critical role here. I have been so impressed in talking with health system leaders, with practice leaders around the fact that they quickly saw one of the things that we highlighted in our article, and that was that they may need to retrain the workforce. So let me use a hockey analogy here, as imperfect as it may be. In hockey, you have your first line. You have your second line. And then I kept joking that at some point you might have to bring in the goalie from the stands. And in fact, that happened last hockey season. And so when I was talking to health system leaders, I said, you have your first line. You know who your respiratory therapists are. You know who your critical care nurses are. You know who your critical care medicine physicians are. But as this pandemic goes on, and as we were at that time quite uncertain about what these infection rates were going to look like, that first line might go down. They might go down because they're infected. They might go down because they had family members who were infected. So you had to have a second line. And so one of the things that we saw was great innovation by health systems and hospitals who recognized, for example, they might need to supplement their critical care nurses by retraining nurses who had emergency room experience or ICU room experience or had backup to their critical care physicians by internal medicine and hospitalists. And so that was one of the things that we saw was great innovation. And not only did they recognize this, but they implemented quickly retraining. So they were able to take these groups and say, okay, if you haven't been in an ICU for a while, what will it take to get you up to speed? And so those were some of the things that we saw. We also saw it with cross-training for people to run ventilators, places that were afraid they would not have enough respiratory therapists, for example, cross-trained certified registered nurse anesthetists who often work with ventilated patients anyway. So we were impressed with the amount of sort of cross-training, or I was, that I saw happening at hospitals and health systems. We also saw it in ambulatory care practices, particularly those in rural communities who recognized, for example, the workflow might need to look differently, particularly around telehealth. So as practices began to see more patients virtually, as CMS began to reimburse for video visits at the same level as in-person visits, they had to really rejig their workflows and retrain their health workforce to be able to address the needs of both their COVID and non-COVID patients. Well, you've talked about nurses, you've talked about students. What about the role of other professionals, dentists, social workers? Have states or healthcare organizations been able to tap their potential as well? Yes, in fact, one of the things that we saw was a recognition that there was a workforce that was being underutilized, underdeployed during the pandemic. And during the acute phase of the pandemic, we knew, for example, dental offices were closing. We knew, for example, that many practices were not taking visits. And so we began to see places where they were training dentists and cross-training and bringing them in because dentists are actually experts at infection control. And they play a critical role in helping in hospitals. In some hospitals, we're using dentists. One of the things that we've also seen since we put our article out 
and this has been something we've been tracking, is as these health systems and practices reduced visits and as demand reduced, we saw a number of furloughed workers. And therefore, you sort of had this untapped pool of healthcare workers. And so one of the challenges was to take this untapped pool of healthcare workers and match them where they were needed, right? And this was partly what New York did and California did through its health corps was to sort of say, calling all volunteers who are available, willing, and able. But one of the challenges we saw, at least in North Carolina where I'm based, is even if you had this untapped pool, you had to figure out a way to match their skills to what was needed. And so it's both a challenge of retraining, but also trying to figure out who's out there and where are they needed and how do those skills match. And that's something we've been wrestling with here in my state of North Carolina. Finally, you mentioned CMS and the change in reimbursement for telemedicine. But beyond that, what are federal agencies doing? What moves have they made to help expand the workforce capacity? And are there other options that could be explored at the federal level rather than the state? Yes, you bring up a really important point, and that is sort of the role of state versus federal actors. And we've spent a lot of time so far talking about state actors. But I will say that CMS and the waivers and regulatory and payment changes that they've made, particularly around telehealth, have been critical. Just to briefly visit them, when they made parity for telehealth reimbursement for video visits to be the same as in-person visits, that fundamentally reorganized many healthcare practices in terms of how they delivered care. And one of the challenges that we saw was that our healthcare systems, our hospitals, our practices were very much set up for in-person visits. And so suddenly there was this sort of shuffling of trying to figure out how to reorganize care so that we could do video visits and trying to figure out which patients could be seen via video which needed to be seen in person. And one of the things from talking to clinicians that I've gathered from just this simple switch from in-person to video is clinicians asking themselves in a new way, is this patient someone I could do via video? And it's actually great in some cases for the provider because it allows them to provide care in a more flexible way around their schedule, which is really important. And then we saw an issue with the fact that Many places, particularly rural communities and older patients, didn't have the technology to be able to do video visits. And so they would only do telephonic visits. And initially, telephonic visits were reimbursed less. And CMS recognized that and then increased the reimbursement rates for telephonic visits. So I think, in fact, that reimbursement rate for telephonic visits and video visits has really driven a lot of important innovation in the workforce. You asked about what else the federal agencies could do. So I think one of the things we need to be thinking about at the federal level is particularly flexibility around how we're going to address this pipeline of health workers who, for example, are either med students in their last years trying to figure out whether they're going to match to residencies or they're nursing students in their last years. And I think that's where sort of federal leadership in terms of thinking about whether it's the accrediting bodies, the ACGME or others, we try to think about ways to really make sure that we don't get this pipeline stalled. Because I'm a bit worried about these students who are looking at the workforce thinking, how am I going to interview for a residency position or how am I going to interview for medical school and what's going to happen to me? So I think there's a real role for leadership here 
in terms of saying, it's going to be okay, we're going to flex on this, and we're going to allow you to do these virtual interviews, et cetera. So that's, I think, federal leadership from federal accrediting bodies. We've seen that somewhat already emerge. I think one thing that we're also going to need a lot of attention on both federally and at the state level, and it's something you haven't asked me about yet, but I want to make sure we touch on, is issues around sustaining the workforce and sustaining their behavioral health needs. I really do worry. I was asked the other day by a reporter if I believed that the pandemic was going to attract more health workers into the workforce or not. There was this supposition by this reporter that post 9-11, we saw a real growth in interest in entering the fire department or entering the police department. And did I think that was going to play out in the health workforce? And I said, I don't know. I think it could go either way. There's definitely, you could say, I think, a recognition that these are healthcare heroes and there are a lot of heroic acts being played out. You could also argue that our healthcare workforce has not been cared for in the way that we want them to be cared for and that that may deter people. I think there's a role for national leadership here in highlighting the mental health needs and needs for the fact that we have a workforce that's facing a huge amount of moral distress and we're going to need to invest in making sure that we sustain our workforce in the long run. And that may be federal funding. It might be an increase in behavioral health providers. There are a number of actions that could be taken. Thank you, Dr. Freer.